welcome to the first episode of Dreams and Screams. I'm Tammy. And I'm Ashley. I'm going to be your host today, but figured we'd first kick it off by just telling you what we are going to do here on the pod. We're going to obviously dive into some true crime, um, some spooky things. Who knows where it will take us? Yeah, some really interesting stories. Yeah. Obviously, we are brand new to this whole podcasting thing, so be kind with us. We are not experts. Not journalists, not reporters. Truly, we're two creative people that talk a lot. And when we sit together, we're like, why don't we try to do this podcast thing when since we're always talking about true crime? She Tammy actually got me into true crime, which is the whole like, yeah. I full circle part consume of it. true crime like it's my business, and we just wanted to share some things that we find interesting, yeah, or spooky. Um, so what do you got for yeah. us today, Ash? We're gonna start kind of with hometown or home state, if you will. So I'm from Massachusetts, and found a story of the story of Daniel Laplante. This story takes place in the 80s, uh, 1986, 1987. So to tee it up a little bit, Townsend, Mass. So this is the northern part of Massachusetts, kind of bordering New Hampshire, about 50 miles from the city of Boston. Again, as somebody who's from Massachusetts, everything's 20 minutes away, (laughs) you know, but really probably an hour. Not close to where I'm not around where I'm from per se, but Massachusetts is such a small state. So there's actually so many true crime stories that come out of Boston. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Boston. Notable stories. So this one was not one that I actually heard of before. Um, I'm always wondering if Tammy knows these because, again, she knows so many. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm really bad with names. So I'll have to like dig into the details a little bit before I know whether I actually know this story. Yeah. Okay. So we're in Townsend, Mass. Um, Again, Daniel LaPlante. He was born in 1970. So when I was first looking at the story, something that immediately freaked me out was the fact that I wasn't born in 1970. But we have the same birth month and date. So you guys share the same birthday? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. I freaked out. Um, Because again, I was like, I have to find a Massachusetts story. And then, of course, I dug and dug and dug. And I was like, oh, what's this one about? And then... As I was researching, I'm like, boom, we have the same birthday. And then I was like, do I abandon ship? Is this too weird? (laughs) And decided, no, I think I have to just keep going. He's born in 1970. We're in 1986. Just to start off, I'll give you a little bit of background around his upbringing, because I think that's very telling of where this story goes toward the end. So he had a troublesome youth growing up. Which is not uncommon, I think, in this true crime space and these stories. You often hear the perfect conditions to make a serial killer or, you know. So there were accounts of physical abuse, sexual abuse, unfortunately, from the close adults in his life. Namely, his father. Um, Some of the reports said there was even, like, tormenting. So, you know, I don't know what that means in, in the sense of, but it's like, did his father just all around give him a hard time at home yeah that's really sad yeah um the home to give a visual was like a junk heap of old cars um run down kind of just disheveled and and not a not a picture perfect new england home if you will 
were they like hoarders or just I don't know hoarders messy. per se, but I think messy. I mean, I know for a fact. Um, like I can picture this home because there's there's always that one in ta- in the town, you know, where it's like um, they don't upkeep the lawn. Like the lawn is overgrown. So just like very messy. There's like a car that has like two wheels missing. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like I know one exactly of those one of those homes. And you're always like, is some does someone live there? You know. So he was known as the weird kid. He had odd behaviors. He was creepy. He was unfriendly and a loner. And it's kind of, even when I read those words, I'm like, that's interesting because usually the loner is like quiet. Mm -hmm. But it did mark that he was unfriendly, which was interesting. This unfriendly loner. Um, And then on to that, subpar hygiene. So, you know, you just picture teenage, yeah, teenage, stinky, unfriendly boy. Not a good look. Yeah, not not a good look at all. His neighbors took a lot of notice to his odd behavior as well. So I think just anybody around him, it was like, definitely this kid is not in a great mental state. He's not got a good home life. He's not got a good school life. He would like disappear into the woods for hours on end, which was, you know, strange. I think as kids, we all did, you know, do that again, maybe not to, in this day and age, but growing up, it was it was not uncommon to go like play in the woods with your friends, but usually not alone, not alone. Yeah. And he's going into the woods alone hours on end, and then coming back. And it's like, where were you? What were you doing? Just strange, strange goings on um, in his daily life. He begins to see a psychiatrist at school and come to find out he has dyslexia. So there's also learning disabilities, uh, dyslexia, hyperactivity disorder, paired with all the things going on at home, sexual abuse. What was really kind of threw me off, but not uncommon that you see in some of these stories was that even the psychiatrist started to sexually abuse him, which was really... Oh my God. Yeah, I... Just so messed up. The person that's supposed to potentially help you deal with everything going on now also is taking advantage. Yeah. These things were happening in his early teen years... I don't want to say because of that, but in his early teen years, we start to see the first signs of crime in the form of stealing. He was breaking into the homes and taking valuables and begins to almost torment the families of these homes that he's broken into by moving things around their home. So there's these families are like, what? Somebody was in here. But maybe it's not like the whole house overturned, but just things were moved. So that was almost precursor to to what was going to become what he's synonymous for in this story. Oddly, he was like playing mind games and fulfilling this desire for torment. They're just really messing with people. Yeah. So again, that's the foreshadowing of where this goes and where this story is going to go. Ultimately, obviously, it's a true crime story. There is murder involved. But what he is the most known for is what I'm about to tell you. So 1986, he acquires a phone number of a local family, and it's unconfirmed how he gets this number. So we're not sure if he had broken into this home, if he previously and and somehow found their number, if just he happened upon it in a phone book. I mean, my town even had like a little town phone book. For just your town? Yeah. It had like four pages. Oh my god. But I mean that's actually kind of cute. Most of the thing, like you would know everybody in your town for the most part. Like all the so and so family. Yeah, and then you would I guess just like look them up in the phone. I don't think I've ever actually used a phone book, but I did see them. We had one. Again, like a big yellow. Yeah, like the yellow pages, right? Yeah. 
and the little town one. The town one, I remember, like, looking up my my friend's number, my... Because you had a landline back then. You We didn't have cell phones. Yeah. So he gets this phone number, and he begins to call. The family's home that he starts to call has a father and two daughters. One of the daughters, the older daughter named Tina, was about 15. He's about 16 at this time, so relatively the same age. But what was really weird is he begins to make up... They start chatting... He begins to make up this whole story around who he is. I'm athletic. I'm good looking. Giving her this vision of he's maybe a teen, like teen hottie, teen heartthrob that she, you know, oh, I'm interested in this kid. So ultimately they schedule a date. When he gets to the house, the day of their date, she opens the door 100% naturally. She's like, time out. Shocked, probably. Shocked. You're not who I thought you were. You don't look anything like. What you said you were about, not great hygiene, hasn't showered, creepy. So like probably his mannerisms and behaviors. It's even interesting now that I think about that, the act that he was able to put on through his voice to give off like, hey, I'm this cool, maybe popular heartthrob. Yeah, so weird. She still goes on the date with him. That's so nice because... These day and age, I'd be like, okay, bye. Exactly. (laughs) You don't look anything like what I thought. Again, we have the internet. Had he said his real name, you'd be able to look. Who knows if he used his real name. So they go on a date. It's almost become like urban legend where a lot of things have been embellished. Some of the things when it comes to these details aren't 100% sure. So maybe they went to a local fair. They got ice cream. Like an average 80s date. Yeah. About an hour in... She's trying to find, how do I get out of this? And she does. But while they're on the date, she openly shares with him that her mother recently died of cancer, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So her dad's single dad, her and her sister, her mom recently died. But he becomes obsessive in asking her questions around her mother's death. Was she in pain? What was it like? Yeah. Yeah, that's really fucking weird. And also sad because it's like, you know, she's being vulnerable to tell him this. But then you're kind of digging a little too far. Like, it's still my mom. Also focused on all the wrong things because you just met this dude. You went out on the state that you didn't even want to go on. And now he's asking you if your mother felt pain. Yeah, just obsessive with the wrong things, like you're saying. Yeah. She finds that weird. They end the date. So fast forward To their house, to Tina and her sister and her dad's home. We have two young girls. It's the 80s. Their mother has just recently died. What do they do? Naturally, they want to somehow continue to connect with their mom. So they have this idea of having a seance. Ooh, okay. Yeah. The 80s, 90s. That was such a thing. Yes. Like in movies and just, it was such a thing. Ouija boards, Bloody Mary. Yeah. All the things. So I don't know if Ouija board was involved in this case or it was truly like sit in a dark room with candles but they attempt to contact their mom later that night they hear knocking and it's like in a rhythmic pattern so they kind of start to interact again with this knocking asking questions they're thinking it's their mom i don't know the exact questions they ask but i can only imagine you know knock twice if you're a mom or they're convinced it's their mom a couple days later the knocking continues every day every day like every night Okay. The knocking continues. They also notice that things around the home start to move. Furniture in other rooms. Not just little things. Not a pen here or there. Okay, maybe I forgot. I moved the pen. But like full on, that chair is in the other room. 
So things you would really notice. That yeah. Someone or something <clears throat> yeah. has touched or moved. So the dad thinks it's them. Mm. The dad's like, stop causing chaos in our home. You two girls are just like causing mayhem. So he thinks they're lying or yeah. just want attention or Probably something. attention. Like, you know, you're trying to cope with the death of your mom and I get it. You're acting out. But like enough is enough. And they're like, dad, it's not us. It's not even mom. This is a demonic spirit. Something is completely off. The father is thinking his daughters are trying to cope and they're struggling with the loss of their mom. So that he's chalking it up to that. They're promising him it's not them, but he doesn't necessarily believe them, which is unfortunate. But also I'm not a parent, but I can only imagine, you know, kids act out. The knocking continues. Now we're in, so we were in 1986. I don't know the exact month that it started, 1986, but the knocking continues it's the following January. Time has gone past. So maybe it was the end of the year. You know, some of the reports say that the events lasted for weeks. Too long. Yeah. Long enough. And the, the girls are almost being driven mad, like, with this because they think they're being haunted. One day they hear the the knocking coming from a different area. Normally it's, like, within the walls of the home, in the room, in the front of their house. This time it's down in their, like, basement. They're home alone. The dad's at work. Oh, that's so creepy. Yeah. And they grab... It said that they they took a an accessible weapon, so, a, like, a knife. I don't, like, I you know, I remember saying home as a teenager and, like, hearing a noise and grabbing the baseball bat. My brother played baseball, you know? And yeah, it's like, you literally grab, you grab whatever the baseball closest. bat and you're like, all right, come out. Like, I'm gonna fuck you up. And it's like, what am I gonna do? You know? Yeah, truly. You would probably just run away instead. Yeah. But. So they take the knife and they go down to the basement and they find what assume, assumed to be blood written on the walls is, I'm in your room, come find me. Something to that effect. Oh my God. Now, naturally, they are traumatized and completely flee the house and run to a neighbor. Okay, good. I was going to say, like, do not go investigating. Yeah, no, it's like straight up horror movie. And that's the thing about this story is it sounds like urban legend because it sounds like a horror movie. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like something you would hear happens in this little town. Right. It sounds like fiction, but this is really happening. The father wasn't home, and when he comes home, the neighbor the neighbor and the girls are telling him whatever. He sees the message, and again, he chalks it up to the girls are responsible. So he still doesn't believe them. He still, he still thinks yeah. they're making it up. Yeah. At this point, he has them enter counseling um, and tries to give them resources to deal with the grief and, like, to try to get them to, to work through the their mental state of trying to cope with the loss of their mom. So a couple weeks go by and a second message shows up in Tina's room. This time it's in her bedroom before it was in the basement. Okay. This time it says, I'm back. Find me if you can. At this point, I mean, I would be done. Burn the house down. Yeah, let's move. Let's get out of here. Like, uh, no thanks. Find me if you can. Imagine a teenager. If I found that as a teenager. Scream. Like, would never stop screaming. Would never stop. I would never sleep again. Like, father comes home, and he's ready to accuse the girls, like, uh, for an additional time, and to be like, this has got to stop. How many times do we have to go through this? The neighbor and the girls tell him what they saw. It says, find me if you can, blah, blah, blah. When he goes to check it out, there's other things 
So the girls ran to the neighbor's house The girls, again. yes, run to the neighbor's okay. house again. What the father finds is odd because there's more things that don't line up to what the girls and the neighbor told them. You know, they told them about the message in the wall and whatever. But there are other things. Maybe there are things moved about. Some sources even said potentially the bathroom, like the toilet had been used, which so somebody like, was in the house. If the toilet was used, somebody's in the house. Yeah, so pretty clear things that Out of they place. would have mentioned. Right. But now it's like additional things. He also wrong. finds a third message. This message says, marry me. Scrawled, fuck? scrawled across Tina's wall. Marry me. At this point, he's in the room. He's like... What is going on? He turns around to find none other than the disheveled boy, Danny LaPlante. Oh, my God. And so he's in her room. He's in her bedroom. Here's a kicker. This may be embellished, but I did find on multiple sources that he was wearing the deceased mother's clothing, potentially even her wedding dress. Oh, my God. Her wedding dress. That's fucking creepy. Yeah. And he was holding a freaking hatchet, wearing a wedding dress, holding a hatchet. What the fuck? It makes you think, like, okay, were you were you gonna try to scare the girls? Like, what was the what was your end game here? I guess. Yeah, like, were you trying to scare them? Or were you gonna murder hurt them? them? Yeah. yeah. As you can imagine, the moments following that, he there was a tussle. Like, he tries to grab him. So everything happens super fast, and he disappears. They're like, damn it! They call the police. But what the police discover, first, the messages were ketchup. Oh, my God. Yeah. I feel like I would have been able to smell that. You do have a nose of a bloodhound, though. Like me, I'd be like, blood! (laughs) You'd be like, a faint of ketchup. Ketchup has a very distinct smell. Speck of dirt. (laughs) Very distinct smell. I don't know that I, if I was traumatized. If I'm traumatized at that point and I think, like, there's a person in my house, I don't know if I would be like, oh. I guess truly you're not, like, analyzing it. But, like, who cleaned it up the first time? Probably the dad. He already didn't believe them. Oh, maybe that's why he thought it was the daughter's. Maybe he picked up on that it was ketchup, but, like, they didn't. I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't think of that. That's interesting. Okay, anyway, sorry. What the police find is a crawl space. So they find a crawl space and Danny's in there. So they arrest him. Upon further investigation, though, they they revealed that he was living in their walls. Like, straight up, there was food. He's straight up living there. What there were, the fuck? He had made tunnels and peepholes. So who knows how long? Yeah, who knows how long. Again, what I had said earlier was some things say this was weeks. Joe Turner, who I'll cite at the end, he thinks this could have gone on for a year, like a, a total of a year. Holy shit. Which blows my mind. How do you keep something up for that long? That's just... Also, do you not have a life? I don't... Yeah. And I... Like, for me, I can't sit still for, like, 20 minutes. How do you live inside the wall? Some of the reports also said it was, like, spaces as small as six inches. How do you fit a human body? I know my... I don't fit in six inches. How small is this dude? He was a teenage boy, so I'm, like... Unless he just was able to kind of contort his body in such a way and really tuck away into these spaces. But he had made tunnels and peepholes, ultimately to spy and kind of stalk Tina. So he probably could watch them at any given moment. Yeah. And there was 
potentially a misguided love or affection from that first date. He filled his time with tormenting and stalking these this poor family. Oh my god. The peepholes um allowed him to make make notes on their routines. So he was able to see when the father was home and when the father was home, he made sure not to make a noise. And then when they weren't home, when the father wasn't home and the girls were home, that's when he did most of his like activity. Oh, what a dick. So he like really kind of kept it under wraps from the father. So naturally the father was like, what are you talking about? I've never heard these things. You, you know. That makes sense. Just the fact that he could keep it up for so long is mind boggling to me. I'm just like, where... Obviously, his dad didn't give a shit about him because yeah, I'm I don't like, know where the, how like where was his family? Why weren't yeah. they wondering where the fuck he was? I don't. Not there was not much after the part of the you know sexual abuse and the potential tormenting from his own father. It didn't really say much about what his father did or his parents or even mention a mother figure. So I'm not sure. I definitely feel like there's so much, again, I'll say Joe Turner, he's writing a book or potentially published at this point in time, Boy in the Walls, seems to have dedicated a lot of time in his career to dig into the story. So I feel like I can even maybe dig a little deeper and try to see if any of that is in there. But from what I could find, his parents were not a major part of any of the articles I read. So after that, he went to Juvie until around October 1987, when he was discovered. That was about January. So literally not enough time. Yeah, not enough time. When he was released, he basically immediately went back to his old ways of, like, stealing and breaking in. And But he went back to his old ways. That was October. In December, he picked another subject, another house. He had stolen two guns. I think from a, a separate home, but he had stolen two guns in one of his recent robberies. He had his sights on another home that was only a half a mile away from his own home. In the home was the wife, Priscilla Gustafson. She was pregnant. She was only 33, I believe, and her two young children, a boy and a girl. Her husband was at work, and some of the sources claimed that LaPlante was thrown off by the family being there. So maybe his original motive and intent was not to have what I'm about to tell you happen. Um, maybe it was just to move more things around and freak him out a little bit more or, or steal some more things. But what he found was the family was home and then he ulti- ultimately murdered the three of them. Oh, my God. So the husband, Andrew, comes home and unfortunately has to witness that his wife was brutally murdered in their bedroom, Danny LaPlante had raped her and shot her at close range multiple times. Wow. The two children, like I, I mentioned, also were murdered, both by the same method, but in two, this was a little odd. He had drowned one in an upstairs bathtub and one in a downstairs bathtub. Um, it didn't quite end there. Police were called, but he fled. And so the police were in an all out manhunt in the town of Townsend, Mass. To find him. Oh, my God. Yeah. The fear, the fear was that, like, with his history, it was like, what length is this kid going to go to to evade being caught? I mean, You know, yeah. he damn near lived in somebody's walls for a whole year. Where's he going to hide yeah, now? Yeah, he could literally be anywhere. Yeah. Where's he going to hide now? Is he going to flee the town? What's going to happen? So he had fled, and apparently a couple towns over, he kidnapped another woman in her car 
Somehow she got away. Thank God. Um, But he was still on the run. 48 hours had gone by. But they finally found him. He was hiding out in a dumpster. What the fuck? (laughs) For two days. Hiding in a dumpster. They were ultimately able to... This kid literally makes no sense. Because it's like he's really smart in some ways and like really dumb in others. They were able to link him with a hair of one of the Gustafsons. At that point, he's in custody. He's arrested. He's 17 years old. And he is sentenced to three life sentences in prison. He is still in prison to this day. Oh, thank God. Yeah. There's really no, nobody knows the full reasoning behind his acts or the murders that that he did. There's no true motive. He allegedly showed little remorse in any of the hearings. And up until 2014, he tried to claim that his rights weren't met because he was a Satanist or something and needed certain things to carry out his religion. Oh, my God. Leave the Satanists alone. (laughs) Just like, what? Like, stop using them as an excuse. Yeah. Obviously, that was not did not go through. Nobody believed him there. And then in 2017, he tried a different angle, which was also denied because of the lack of remorse. He tried to plead for a reduced sentence. There's a law that basically states that juvenile juveniles that go to prison have the right to like parole so that they could re-enter society type of thing but it he showed little remorse it did not go through he has the potential for parole after an additional 45 years from when he was sentenced so for him that would be 2032 and he would be 62 years old fuck that that guy needs to stay in prison yeah i mean 2032 is not that far from i know know, that's like nine years from now Mm -hmm. so that's my story for today. I will say that Joe Turner, again, the boy in the walls, one of my main sources, it seems like in reports with him and other journalists, again, that I'll cite in a second, his goal was to keep him in prison for life. Good. So I feel like, well, one, I definitely want to read this book now. Yeah, we have to find it. And then two, good job, Joe Turner, because yeah. I think this dude needs to definitely yeah. stay there's no way he wouldn't return to a life of crime. Some additional sources, just to quickly call out Neil Patmore, um, allthatsinteresting.com, Daniel LaPlante, assistant news anchor at the Daily Star UK, Simon Emilienko. I don't want to say that wrong. I'm sorry if I did. Um, but he actually had interviews also with Joe Turner. So um, it's interesting to see different authors and their interactions about the same subject matter. CBS Boston news reporting around the sentencing in 2017 and other additional news sources from Massachusetts. That was a really good story. I have heard the story before. I just did not remember the details. Yeah. Stay tuned. We have some. Tammy's up next. Really, my next week will be also a hometown, if you will. I am from Long Island, New York, so I'm sure you guys know what I'll be covering. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.